I'm on a bit of a, uh, I have a theme going on in me at the moment, and it's based around this quote that I've mentioned to you before from Bobby Connor. And he said this, he said, we have become far too familiar with the God we hardly know. You think about how familiar, like I, 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 I watched, uh, uh, as I was thinking about this, I watched a video of that uh, very famous, you know, popular song, I Am a Friend of God. And I believe that because of what Jesus has opened up, we can be friends of God. Absolutely. But I just wonder in a large setting how it can become so casual. Yeah, I'm a friend of God, you know, and there's no, there's no substance or meaning to that. So I've been thinking a lot about this. We've become too familiar with the God we hardly know. And I would say, especially in the commercial pop culture church, we've become very familiar with a God we hardly know, very, very casual, very, um, we've, even sometimes we've created a God who's more in the likeness of our comfort zone or our preferences than who he actually is. We've, we've sort of invented this God, and I've literally heard preachers say this, We've, we've invented a God who won't scare us. We've invented a God who won't unsettle us. We've vent, invented a God who won't do anything that we would ever find difficult. Now think about your life for a moment. You're, you know, you, you know, your walk with the Lord. Has, how are you getting on with a God who will never do anything difficult? Have you ever found that he, how many of you have found that sometimes he does do things you find difficult or uncomfortable or unsettling or inconvenient? Uh, I think we've been in danger of inventing a God who, who will meet all our needs, that's biblical, but also fulfill all our wants. And I don't know about you, but uh, I remember Keith Green in one of his songs, he said this, uh, singing as if from the perspective of God, he said something about your, the lusts of your flesh is not something I can satisfy. We've invented a God who is a gentleman and therefore who is predictable, and who is good by our own definition of good, and it's kind of like he's, he's, he's nice. Now, I'm not saying God's not nice, but, but the God that we've invented in, the, in, in, in this pop culture environment is very nice, and I don't know, he's almost a little bit to me like a heavenly vending machine. You're very quiet. Am I off on the wrong foot here? Too bad, this is all I got. So that which I just described, I want to ask you this question. Does that sound like what's recorded in the Bible? And if you think about the original 12 apostles, would they confirm that assessment of God? Or would they be going, hey, hang on a minute. We were with him when he walked on the water and scared the heck out of us. Would they say, we were with him when he was asleep in the back of the boat and the storm was going to drown us and we woke him up and we saw him speak to the storm and it stopped. You, you, you say that he won't do anything that is unsettling. We were with him when he went across the lake to the guy who was naked and roaming around in the tombs and cast a legion of demons out of him into a herd of pigs that then ran down the hill and drowned themselves. We were with him when he fearlessly confronted the religious leaders and called them whitewashed tombs and hypocrites. We were with him when he chose the most unacceptable people, the tax collectors. 
when he ate with sinners, when, when the woman with the, with the very dubious reputation came in right in front of the religious leaders and started weeping over his feet and kissing his feet and wiping his feet with her hair, and we were with him. We were with him when he died on the cross. And we heard the story when he was raised from the dead. And we were in the locked room hiding when he walked through the wall. Inconvenient? Absolutely. Unsettling? Terrifying. <laughs> Hello? I think I told you this once before, but one time I just felt like the Lord said out of the blue, I felt like he just said, Christians are boring. And I was like, oh. And then he went on. I felt like he said, Christians are boring because Christians are bored. And we are bored because dead religion domesticated believers until the faith bears little resemblance to its origins. So I want to talk to you a little bit today and probably the next few times that I talk to you, I want to talk to you about this unfamiliar God. Acts 17, 23. Open your Bibles, turn there, turn them on. So this is Paul in Athens, and he's talking to a group of people called the Areopagus, which is like a combination of the religious leaders and the town council. These were the power brokers. And verse 23 makes it clear that before he talked to them, he'd been for a walk around their city. Because look at this, verse 23. As I was passing through and considering the objects of worship. So there were obviously, there were idols and objects of worship. You know, it was a pantheistic, multi-God society. And so they were all over the place. As I was passing through and considering the objects of worship, I found even an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. So basically they were hedging their bets. They wanted to cover all the gods, so they put one there to the unknown God, just to make sure that we had something if we missed one. And then look at this. Therefore, the one you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. I love that. I love that more than you do. Paul didn't rebuke them for their idolatry. He said this, I'm going to tell you about this God that you don't know. So here we are. We live in a society now where God is not known. We live in a church where I would suggest that God is not known. So what does the Word of God say about this unknown God? So if we want to avoid coming up with some sort of other God, replace a God made in our own image with another one, if we want to not have an image, we've got to look and go, what does the Bible actually say about him? Now, I think you can tell a lot about someone by how they choose to introduce themselves. Yes? This is going to be a lot easier for all of us if you answer the questions when I ask them. It is polite, is it not, to answer a question when one is asked? 
I, I actually get it because after a worship time like that, there's a part of me that just wants to go somewhere and sit quietly for a while. So I, I get that. So Ashley, the reason that this is hard for me is because of you, the way you led us in worship. Please do that often. So how does God introduce himself? Well, if you've got your Bibles there, turn to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, and I'm not going to read all of it to you for the sake of time, but verses 1 through 15. Can I encourage you to make a note there? I want you to read that, all of it later, a couple of times. So here is Moses going about his daily life as he had done for about 40 years. Okay, he'd left Egypt when he was, you know, the whole, the whole thing, and now he's out, he's been out uh, serving uh, his father-in-law, and he's out going about his business as he'd done for 40 years. And then something on this particular day catches his attention. He sees a bush, notice this, that's on fire but not consumed. It's on fire. Now, we might think the bush on fire is strange enough, but apparently, according to one thing I wrote, spontaneous combustion was not uncommon in the desert. It was very dry and very hot. But this bush was unusual because it was on fire but not consumed. So it was in flames, but it didn't just burn to the ground. It's possible Moses... He might have walked past this bush several times. He might have walked past and go, oh, yeah, burning bush. And then he walks past it maybe on the way back. He's like, isn't that bush the same bush that was burning before? How come it hasn't burnt to the ground? And he walks past and he's like, there's that jolly bush again. It's still burning. So he goes over. And here's where things, you know, this get really weird. Out of the bush, a voice Take off your shoes, Moses, because you're... St- <laughs> Imagine this. You know, like you're out in the garden. I have never had a bush say this to me. Take your shoes off. This is holy ground. And following this, God speaks and sets before Moses an impossible mission. Go and set my people free from their 400 years of slavery. So what does Moses do? He tries to convince God that God has made a mistake. Wouldn't you? 400 years of slavery. God speaks to you out of a bush and says, go to Pharaoh, who you grew up with, remember? Go to Pharaoh and basically you're gonna, I'm going to use you to set my people free, Right? So Moses tries to convince God that God has made a mistake. How many of you have ever done that? Many times, many times. You'll be doing that probably all your life. Just saying. And then Moses has a question. After he loses that argument, Moses has a question. What is his question? The question is this. Who shall I say sent me? No, that's not the question. The question is not who shall I say sent me. The, he, knew who was being, he, he knew who was sending him. He knew it was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of his fathers. He knew who this was. His question is this. What is your name? Not just who has sent me. What is your name? And look, here is the answer. Exodus 
And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Not only that, this is my name forever. It's not just my name today. This is my name forever. And this is a memorial to all generations. So I am is God's name but it's also his name forever and it's to be remembered by all generations. Now think about this for a moment. You know, all gods have names. Our God has the coolest name. All of, well, actually there's lots of names. That, I, think about the name Ancient of Days. You know, other, other you know, quote unquote gods, small g, there's not a plethora of them. But anyway, no, I'm not going to say that. There's only one God, and his name is I Am. His name is Ancient of Days. His name is Father of Heavenly Lights. That's like he wins the name competition hands down. Hello? Well, anyway, he's got no competition, but okay. I am who I am is my name, he said. And you shall tell the children of Israel, I am has sent me. Now we get to read that. Like when I read that, I still feel like there's this force to it. Can you imagine what it was like hearing it? Can you imagine what it was like to hear out of the burning bush, I am who I am? Shufar. So hold that thought for a moment. And I want you to consider for a moment how we in New Zealand as believers tend to present God. Particularly how we present him to young people. I'm thinking a lot about this youth camp that's coming up in April. You know, I'm thinking a lot about all the places I'm going to, but I'm thinking a lot about that. How do we present God to children, to young people? Well, one of the things that we want them to know about God is that God is relevant relevant to their lives, that there is a relevance to knowing God in your daily life. That's important. But then we go from that to not only is he relevant, he's not stuffy. He's not old-fashioned. He's not boring. He's up to the minute, hip and happening. We've even presented him as being trendy. In many ways, we modify the message to suit society around us, and we often quote this. 1 Corinthians 9.22, I become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. Do you think that's what Paul was saying? He was saying, we need to make it hip and happening and trendy. What we do when we do this is we sacrifice our testimony on the altar of relevance and we are in danger of becoming so like the people that need to be reached. There's no longer any contrast visible in our lives because we become so like the society that we're trying to reach. And in this pursuit, here's, here's the guts of this. In this pursuit, the church became contemporary. What is the root word of contemporary? Temporary. I've been joking about this for years. Like you can tell a lot about style by the way that young people wear their jeans. You know, like remember, like I, I remember, I remember the first ever pair of Levi's silver tab jeans that I bought. They were 
horrendous. Like they were these big baggy things with these great big pockets down the front and they were so loose, you know, you had to tie a belt up and, you know, and young people, you know, they weren't trying to keep them up, you know, they were sort of hanging down the back so their designer undies were, and so that people were walking around with their jeans on like this, sort of having to walk like this to keep them from falling down. And then it went to, you know, the, what were they called? Stovepipe jeans, where they were so tight, they looked like they were wearing leggings and everyone's walking around like this. Fashions change, trends change, up to the minute changes. How does that interact with the God who says, my name is I am? So God says his name is I am, and he says this is his name forever. So it's his name today, just like it was back then. He says every generation needs to remember that this is my name. This is a memorial for all generations. And I suspect that this name, I am, reveals how unfamiliar far too many believers have become with this God that we claim that we know. What does I am even mean? I am means, and this is, this is just going to be a pale, poor attempt to begin to begin to scratch the surface of the surface of what this name means. I am means he is forever present. He's not limited to the past, nor is he consigned to the future. He's not limited nor defined by time. He is above and beyond time. Don't you love this? Don't you love Jesus? Think about how confusing this was when Jesus made this statement. Jesus said to them, Surely I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Can't you see how the presence, the present, the tenses are all mixed up? God is forever present. Think about that for a There's nothing contemporary about him. He is forever present. Second thing I would say, and again, I, this is scratching, I'm not even scratching the. I'm not even scratching the surface of the surface. He is the fullness of everything that he has ever been in the past and everything that he will ever be in the future all at the same time. He's not growing or maturing or learning like we are. You know, like we, we, as believers, the Bible refers to us, we're kind of pilgrims, aren't we? How many of you are growing and learning and changing? If you're not, then, then you know, you've, you're either dead or you're religious because it's a journey and we're always learning. That's why I think unteachable believers are a real pain in something you sit on. The ones that are like, oh, yes, brother, I've arrived. I'm like, yeah, it was a conducting flight. Get back on the plane. You know what I mean? Like you go through something and you get to the point, you're like, praise God, I've got that now. And then you realize, uh-oh, boarding, and off we go again. It's like that. It's a pilgrim journey. God is not growing. He is not maturing. He is not learning. He is not a work in progress like we are. He is perfect. And he is complete. He is not shaken and changed by anything that could ever go on in our world. 
He's not freaked out today by wars or rumors of wars. He's not freaked out by balloons flying over foreign countries or people threatening, I'm going to do this or I'm going to blow that up or you're going to run out of this and there's a worldwide red onion shortage. He isn't intimidated or unsettled by what the United Nations are up to. He's not sitting there in heaven when someone gives a speech at the United Nations feeling concerned or worried. He's not concerned and upset by by this prime minister going and this one coming in. Psalm 2, 1 through 4. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's talking about Jesus. Saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Oh no, the government. The Lord scoffs at their plans. And he will even use the plans of the most wicked agendas to further his purpose. One of the things that... um, Oh, no, I can't remember how that went, so I won't even try. Notice this. I am who I am. Not I am what I am. I am who I am. He's personal. He's a who, not a what. This reveals that he is a, he is a being, not a force. He is a being. He has a name. And you know what that tells us? He can be known. He has no interest in being represented by a a statue there to cover the bases to make sure we've got the whole plethora of gods covered. He can be known. I don't know how this is working for you, but I feel like I'm just going to fly apart. He is all sufficient. You know, there's a, there's a thing that goes around about the, it's, I can't remember, I think it's called this idea of the needy God. That God made us because he needs us. Absolute nonsense. Absolute, I, I want to say something stronger, but I won't. Absolute nonsense. He made us out of the overflow of his all completeness. He didn't make us. I've heard, I've heard preachers say, well, God looked around and it was a big universe and he was lonely, so he made us. What nonsense. That's the stuff you wash pigs with. Hogwash. He's all sufficient. <laughs> He's fully complete. Maybe, maybe some of you are assessing whether or not I should still be sent out to make trouble around the country. Maybe, maybe you want to just with, withdraw that. That's, you, well, you laid hands on me and sent me, maybe. <laughs> He's perfect. He's perfect. I love singing. You are perfect in all of your ways. I love singing that. He needs nothing. He lacks nothing. 
He's always present tense. Mike was telling me, and he sent me some writing that he did about this, how David Pawson interprets the term I am as always. It's like God saying, my name is always. He's always present tense. He's outside of time. In fact, he contains time. And he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Hallelujah. So I just, this is the recreational part of, uh, like, um, I just recreationally started roaming around a few Bible verses that came to mind as I was meditating on I am. Here's one. Psalm 103 verse 17. From everlasting to everlasting, God's love is with those who fear him. From forever past till forever future, God's love is with those who fear him. Now, here's something that we realize. Like, I turned 55 last week. Happy birthday to me. From forever past did not begin in 1968 when I was born. From forever past is forever. So from forever backwards to forever forwards and everything in between, God has, does, and will love me, which is why it's so ridiculous that the devil runs around with his, does God really love you question and freaks so many Christians out. From forever past, from everlasting to everlasting. So it's his love is outside time. It's not, my life is framed by time. I had a start point, but God's love doesn't. Isn't that outrageous? What about this? I love this. Revelation 1.8. I am the Alpha, the beginning, and the Omega, the end, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I love that. I love that he says, I am the one who is and who was and who is to come. And then he says, the Almighty. So Alpha and Omega, he's the beginning and the end. He's the origin and the destination. He is humanity's framework. Who is and who was and who is to come. He's the God who always was. He's the God who always is. And he is the God who is to come. And this word almighty. Absolute, universal, omnipotent, sovereign. <laughs> who holds sway over all things. Can I read that to you again? Absolute and universal, omnipotent, sovereign, who holds sway over all things. Nearly there. Revelation 4.8. The four living creatures, each having six wings, we're full of eyes all around and within. So nothing gets past them because they're covered in eyes. And they do not rest day or night saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You know what the word holy means? Oh, it means all sorts of things. It means physically pure, morally blameless, sacred, other than which means foreign to, unlike us. 
Or it means this, awful. When was the last time we heard a sermon in church about how awful God is? Awful. Full of awe. We use the word awful as a bad thing, and we use awesome like, oh, I, I, went, I went for lunch and got a sandwich. It was awesome. Now, here's something that I didn't know. Like, if, um, like we, we went over and, and had dinner at Malcolm and Cindy's place, and I'm, uh, Cindy made some chicken. It was really good. Notice that? Like, if we want to emphasize that something is good, we don't just say it was good. We say, we emphasize it. We go, oh, it was really good. Maybe you might even want to say it was really, really good. The Hebrew tradition is this. If you say something, if you want to really emphasize it, you double it. Holy. You go, oh, holy, holy. This is the only place where it goes three. Holy, holy, holy. So not only, so these are the living creatures. This is not even us peering through the darkness trying to look into eternity. This is living creatures covered in eyes looking at him face to face and they go, you're not holy. You're not even holy. You're holy, holy, holy. Do you get it? It's like, it's like, it's not even like, it's not even, holy, holy is not double. It's like exponentially more and then exponentially more again, mind-blowingly holy. And then here's my, here's my last thing. Ashley, are your fingers okay today? Okay, can you come again? Would that be And Joe, do you want to come too? Ashley wounded herself leading worship a couple of weeks ago. She actually had a cut on her finger and there was blood in the guitar. How you doing? You right? What's the time? Oh, look at that, 11.48. Nearly done. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm generally not. Today I probably needed to go out during the worship to use the restroom, but I couldn't leave because it was too good, so I do have a time limit built in. <laughs> too much information? I love the book of Job. And I love at the end where God starts talking. In the context of becoming too familiar with the God we hardly know, we treat prophecy. <laughs> oh, there was prophecy at church today. What was it? I can't remember. I don't know about you, but I, I'm not referring to today in any way, shape, or form, but I've so often been in church contexts where people are saying, the Lord says, and I'm like, I don't think so. I'm telling you honestly. I'm like, that doesn't sound like Him. It sounds like empty, sentimental reassurance for unredeemed hearts and unrepentant saints. Anyway, just saying. I love this, Job 38. So you know Job's been through all this stuff and all these people have got stuff to say. Remember the most excellent job that Ross did when we had church at his house going through the book of Job? Job 38 verse 3, I love this. Brace yourself like a man and I will speak to you. Imagine that. Imagine God saying, brace yourself. I'm about to speak. <laughs> 
Brace yourself like a man and I will speak to you and you shall answer me. Now listen to this. This this gives us a window into who God is, but it also gives us a window into how creation happened. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? And on what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy? This is how we were made. This is what God is like. Perhaps you might consider the Big Bang to be impressive. The Big Bang's a big compared to this you've got the morning stars singing and angels shouting for joy while God's measuring out the foundations of the earth this doesn't happen very often does it this is one of my favorite oh gosh I'm a mess this is one of my favorite passages in all of the scripture you want to know why I get up early in the morning most of the time this is the verse that goes through my mind One of my favorite things is when you see the black sky get the first tiny little hint of blue. Job 38, 12. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? I love sitting there in the bay window at the front of our house, peering out between the Pahutakawa tree and our neighbor's place. And you see that first little hint of the faintest, when you're first looking at it, you're like, you can't even tell if it's there. Well, you haven't been able to see it for about the last two weeks because of all the clouds. But you look at it and you see this first bit and you go, is that the black starting to go blue? And you go, I love watching you give orders to the morning. This is our God. He's the one who gives orders to the morning. He's not just some heavenly vending machine. He's the glorious, omnipotent, beginning and end sovereign over everything. And this is the God we must know because if we don't know Him, how can we represent Him? If all we know is a heavenly vending machine, then all we've got is to go and pray for people that their problems go away. And when their problems don't go away, we've got nothing for them. Because we don't have a God who even uses the problems and the pain of the journey to fashion His people into what we're ultimately going to be, which is fit for purpose, purpose not just in this realm, but in forever. I thought I was going to completely lose the plot then and just start sobbing all over the pulpit. Here's the last, I already said the last thing. This was the first summer that we didn't go uh, down to the family's beach house uh, in the Abel Tasman National Park. We didn't go for a number of reasons, and, you know, it's not a big, you know, we were quite happy to stay home in the end. But when we go down there, one of the things that we love doing, you get there and you shovel the food in the fridge and you stick the bags in the rooms, and one of our first things we love to do is we go for a walk and see what's changed. And one of the things that you love about going there is not much changes, but one thing does change. Somehow the sandbars move. Every year you go in the sandbars. Like the, when we first used to go, there was this big sandbar. So if you're at the beach, the big sandbar was over there. And then over years, it disappeared and it wound up over here and it was way out to sea. And then over about the last five years, we've watched it kind of march its way in. And so you go for a look around, and the first thing you're looking for is, where are the sandbars this year? 
Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know what? Every time you look at him, nothing's changed. Even if you see something new to you, it's from forever. Nothing's changed. <laughs>